Welcome to the November 17th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, we discuss the role of allogeneic transplant in adult patients with Philadelphia chromosome-positive acute lymphoblastic leukemia. In a retrospective study, transplant provided no survival benefit in patients with rapid and deep responses to induction therapy that included BCR-ABLE1 inhibitors. Up next, we discuss the evidence for an increased risk of ventricular arrhythmias with use of acalabrutinib, which has emerged as a class effect of brutin-tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Lastly, we examine a novel alloantigen-specific model to test the efficacy of a prophylactic treatment strategy for preventing fetal neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia. The first research article is entitled The Role of Allogeneic Transplant for Adult Philadelphia-Positive ALL in CR1 with Complete Molecular Remission. A retrospective analysis by Armin Gobadi of the Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, and colleagues. About 25% of adults with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL, are positive for the Philadelphia chromosome. This cytogenetic abnormality was associated with a very poor prognosis before the introduction of tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or TKIs. Historically, long-term survival was observed in fewer than 20% of Philadelphia-positive patients treated with chemotherapy alone. However, among patients who underwent consolidation with allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, long-term survival was seen in approximately 40% of cases. Allogeneic transplantation had been a standard recommendation for all eligible patients in first complete remission. Fast forward to the TKI era and outcomes have drastically improved for transplant-eligible patients with Philadelphia-positive ALL. So what is the role of allogeneic transplant today for patients with Philadelphia-positive ALL? In the imatinib era, studies confirmed the additional benefit of allogeneic transplant in first remission. Yet more potent TKIs are ratcheting up survival rates, making the role of transplant less conclusive. This is particularly true for patients who achieve rapid and deep responses following intensive chemotherapy plus TKI. In one case series, patients with pH-positive ALL who achieved a complete molecular response, or CMR, had a four-year overall survival rate of 66%, which is comparable to long-term survival seen in earlier cohorts of patients undergoing allogeneic transplant. However, that study was relatively small, only 85 patients, and it lacked a comparator arm. The present study by Gobadi and co-authors takes research efforts a step further. This multicenter retrospective study included 230 patients, of whom 98 underwent allogeneic transplant and 132 who did not, all of whom received a TKI as part of their initial therapy. All patients were diagnosed with Philadelphia-positive ALL between May 2001 and December 2018 and achieved a complete remission with CMR within 90 days of diagnosis. The definition of CMR was a BCR-ABLE1 transcript value less than 0.01% via quantitative PCR, the same as in prior case studies. Most patients in the study were treated with hyper-CVAD, 81%, plus dasatinib or ponatinib. Recipients of allogeneic transplant were younger, fitter, and less likely to have received ponatinib. Most transplants were myeloablative, 82%, and approximately half, 54%, included total body irradiation, or TBI, conditioning. 
Among patients who did not undergo allogeneic transplant, about half of the patients received desatinib, while a quarter received ponatinib and another quarter received imatinib. Almost all patients, 93%, received maintenance treatment. The numbers were a bit different for patients who did undergo allogeneic transplant. A little more than half received desatinib, but only 6% received ponatinib and 39% imatinib. Only 43% received maintenance treatment. The authors found that allogeneic transplant was not associated with improvements in overall survival or relapse-free survival in a multivariable analysis adjusted for performance status, age, and use of ponatinib as the initial TKI. The adjusted hazard ratio for overall survival was 1.05, which was not statistically significant. A propensity score matching analysis confirmed results of the multivariable analysis. There were definitely some outcome differences. For patients undergoing allogeneic transplantation, cumulative incidence of relapse was lower, with an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.32, but non-relapse mortality was higher, with an adjusted hazard ratio of 2.59. Given the excess of non-relapse mortality among patients undergoing transplant, investigators hypothesized that reduced-intensity conditioning would serve to minimize this outcome. However, reduced-intensity conditioning was not associated with improvements in overall or relapse-free survival in a subsequent analysis. In summary, the study concluded that adult patients with Philadelphia-positive ALL who achieved a CMR within 90 days of starting treatment did not derive a survival benefit from allogeneic transplant in first complete remission. In a commentary on this study, Marlies Luskin of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, said that in the absence of a randomized trial, this relatively large retrospective study represents a noteworthy contribution to our knowledge. However, the applicability of these findings to clinical practice may be somewhat limited because of the management of Philadelphia-positive ALL is moving at lightning speed. First, this study does not address the role of allogeneic transplant in patients with CML in lymphoid blast crisis, therapy-related ALL, or Philadelphia-positive ALL that responds more slowly to therapy. It also does not apply to those treated with novel chemotherapy-free approach regimens, such as TKI plus blinitumumab. It is also unclear whether transplant would benefit patients with additional high-risk genetic features, such as IKZF1. On the toxicity side, advances in prevention and management of graft-versus-host disease and development of non-TBI conditioning regimens could decrease non-relapse mortality. Also, the increasing use of minimal residual disease testing to detect lymphoblastic disease will help to identify patients who need the therapeutic intensification that transplant provides. And then there's CAR T-cell therapy. Will that become the preferred salvage option for relapsed or refractory ALL? These are all questions that need to be answered, preferably with prospective randomized trials. Until then, Luskin concludes, transplant specialists remain critically important in the management of adult patients with Philadelphia-positive ALL. Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. The next research article is entitled Ventricular Arrhythmias and Sudden Death Events Following Acalabrutinib Initiation by Seema Bott and John Gambrell of The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, and colleagues. It's been almost a decade now since the Food and Drug Administration first approved ibrutinib for use in the treatment of B-cell lymphoproliferative disorders. And cardiac toxicity is known to be a treatment-limiting side effect, but not only for ibrutinib, but in general for brutin tyrosine kinase, or BTK, inhibitors. The most commonly observed cardiac toxicity is atrial fibrillation, 
When observed in clinical practice, this adverse event often warrants discontinuation of therapy due to an increased bleeding risk, especially with the use of ibrutinib plus anticoagulation. In clinical trials of ibrutinib, cardiac arrhythmias were observed in up to 20% of patients, including a 12% incidence of atrial fibrillation. Conversely, in patients not receiving ibrutinib, cardiac arrhythmias were seen in 8% of individuals, including 1.2% with atrial fibrillation. With longer follow-up, cases of ventricular arrhythmias and sudden cardiac deaths have been reported among ibrutinib-treated patients, emphasizing a potential for severe cardiotoxicity. Cardiac adverse events have also been reported for acalabrutinib, a next-generation BTK inhibitor, with indications for use in mantle cell lymphoma and chronic lymphocytic leukemia. However, acalabrutinib was associated with fewer cardiovascular events when directly compared to ibrutinib in a randomized phase 3 trial. And in a pooled analysis of 762 patients receiving acalabrutinib, 17% experienced cardiovascular events, of which atrial fibrillation was the most common, seen in 5% of patients. However, no ventricular arrhythmias were reported. However, in this edition of Blood, the authors provide evidence for the first time of an increased risk of ventricular arrhythmias in patients treated with acalabrutinib. They report a large cohort of 290 consecutive adult patients with B-cell malignancies that were treated with acalabrutinib between 2014 and 2020. Nearly 90% of the patients had a diagnosis of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and about 25% had previously received treatment with ibrutinib. The primary endpoint of this study was incident development of symptomatic ventricular arrhythmias, including ventricular fibrillation, ventricular tachycardia, and symptomatic premature ventricular contractions after acalabrutinib initiation. Over a median follow-up of 42.3 months, 10 patients developed symptomatic ventricular arrhythmias, including one sudden death ventricular fibrillation event and one recurrent sustained ventricular tachycardia with a median time to event of 14.9 months. Eight out of those 10 cases had at least a probable association with acalabrutinib treatment. In addition, six of the cases were in patients with no history of coronary artery disease or heart failure. Over the 1,063-person years of acalabrutinib exposure, the corresponding estimated 100,000-person year ventricular arrhythmia incidence rate was 818. Excluding cases in patients with prior ibrutinib exposure, coronary artery disease, or heart failure, the weighted average incidence was 394 per 100,000 person years. In a previously reported cohort of ibrutinib-treated patients, the incidence of ventricular arrhythmia was 596 per 100,000 person years, representing a relative risk of 0.66, favoring acalabrutinib. When compared to a reported idiopathic ventricular arrhythmia incidence of 48.1 among similar non-acalabrutinib subjects in a U.S. population-based study, this still translated into a statistically significant observed versus expected relative risk of 8.2 and an absolute excess risk of 346. In an accompanying commentary, Petra Langerbeins of the University of Cologne and the German CLL study group said that these data strongly indicate a class effect of BTK inhibitors with regard to ventricular arrhythmias, even if the frequency of this severe cardiotoxicity is less common in acalabrutinib versus ibrutinib-treated patients. The direct implication for clinical practice, according to Langerbeins, is that all BTK inhibitor-treated patients should undergo systematic cardiac monitoring, 
For example, before starting treatment, careful assessment of cardiovascular risk factors and a baseline electrocardiogram should be undertaken. Clinicians need to ask BTK inhibitor-treated patients whether they are experiencing symptoms of arrhythmia, which may include palpitations, syncope, or lightheadedness. If present, a low threshold should exist for performing diagnostic electrocardiograms. Because the median time to ventricular arrhythmia was more than one year after initiating treatment, a time-limited treatment regimen with a BTK inhibitor may not only be able to mitigate long-term toxicities, but also the risk of severe cardiotoxicity. Longerbines also cites that given the availability of other targeted treatment modalities, patients developing BTK inhibitor-associated cardiotoxicity may be advised to discontinue BTK inhibitor treatment and switch to an alternative treatment regimen. The final research article is entitled Prophylactic Administration of HPA1A-Specific Antibodies Prevents Fetal Neonatal Alloimmune Thrombocytopenia in Mice by Huaying Ji of the Blood Research Institute at Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and colleagues. Fetal Neonatal Alloimmune Thrombocytopenia, or FNAIT, is a life-threatening bleeding disorder that affects 1 in 350 pregnancies. In 1 out of every 1,000 to 2,500 live births, FNAIT causes severe thrombocytopenia. Some affected fetuses or neonates can unpredictably experience intracranial hemorrhage, resulting in irreversible brain damage or death. The cause of FNAIT is maternal alloantibodies to paternally inherited human platelet alloantigens, or HPAs, on the platelet surface. The most common culprit is human platelet antigen 1A, or HPA1A, which is implicated in 75-80% to of severe cases of FNAIT. FNAIT has a similar pathophysiology to that of hemolytic disease of the fetus and newborn, or HDFN. In the case of HDFN, a rhesus-D or RHD-negative pregnant patient may develop alloantibodies to paternally inherited RHD antigens expressed on fetal and neonatal red blood cells. The maternal IgG alloantibodies can traverse the placenta and destroy the fetal red blood cells, leading to anemia and potentially high drops fatalis and or death of the fetus. However, HDFN and FNAIT diverge both in the source of fetal antigen RHD versus HPA, respectively, and the timing of maternal alloimmunization. While nearly all HDFN occurs in subsequent pregnancies after alloimmunization from fetal maternal hemorrhage during a previous pregnancy, an estimated 25% or more of FNAIT cases occur without warning during gestation of the first pregnancy due to alloimmunization to HPA as early as gestational week 17. At the present time, there are no approved strategies to prevent FNAIT. Targeting HPA1A may be an attractive strategy due to its central role in many severe cases. It has been hypothesized that, in patients at risk of FNAIT, use of an anti-HPA1A immunoglobulin G preparation could be used in low doses to head off alloimmunization. An antibody prophylaxis strategy would be analogous to what is done for hemolytic disease of the fetus and newborn. Today, low-dose anti-RHD antibodies are given during pregnancy or at childbirth in at-risk cases. That has cut the frequency of hemolytic disease of the newborn by more than 99%. In the current article, Xi and co-authors have developed a novel mouse model for studying FNAIT. 
Recently, they developed transgenic mice expressing the human HPA1A alloantigenic epitope by immunizing wild-type female mice with platelets from HPA1A transgenic mice. They can induce generation of anti-HPA1A antibodies capable of crossing the placenta, reproducing relevant clinical features of FNAIT. They used their alloantigen-specific model to test two HPA1A-specific therapeutic candidates. One, a recombinant monoclonal antibody, RLYB212, and the other, a polyclonal antibody, RLYB211, derived from the plasma obtained from patients who had become alloimmunized as a result of a prior pregnancy. The aim was to test the ability of these antibodies to prevent maternal alloimmunization and the development of FNAIT. Both treatments were able to rapidly and completely eliminate HPA1A-positive platelets from circulation in wild-type Balb C mice. Both treatments likewise prevented the development of HPA1A alloantibodies. The investigators also took HPA1A negative female mice and treated them with anti-HPA1A antibody before exposing them to the HPA1A positive platelets. Pups born to these prophylactically treated female mice had significantly improved platelet counts and no bleeding symptoms. A commentary on this study was provided by John Semple of Lund University in Sweden and Rick Kapoor of Sanguin Research in the Netherlands. They said these findings provide preclinical evidence that the antibody treatments rapidly cleared HPA1A positive platelets from the circulation, thus preventing alloimmunization and thereby the development of FNAIT. They cite some limitations of the study, including that the mechanism of immune suppression was not directly investigated but most likely involves rapid platelet antigen clearance preventing the development of an alloimmune response. In addition, the utilized FNAIT mouse model is dependent on platelet pre-immunization, as HPA1A alloantibodies are not generated solely due to pregnancy, for yet unknown reasons. The potential for RLYB211 as a prophylactic regimen for FNAIT is further supported by a preliminary report of eight healthy male subjects. Administration of RLYB211 in six patients demonstrated acceptable safety and tolerability and significantly accelerated the clearance of mismatched HPA1A positive platelets compared to two individuals treated with placebo. Considering both the animal and human data together, Semple and Kapoor envision a path forward combining antenatal screening and prophylaxis to combat FNAIT. However, large clinical trials will be needed to evaluate the safety, efficacy, and cost-benefit of this approach. In addition, defined risk stratification tools will be required to implement antenatal screening. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.